You know, I, I think it's taken me a lot of years to try to figure out that essentially uh, these kinds of events that we're at right now uh, are places where we can actually meet with God. But it's only a place where you can actually meet with God if you begin to open yourself up to that experience. And a lot of people need permission to be here, meaning you need someone to say from up front, it's okay you're here, and you're not there. Because some of you feel guilty about being here right now. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's nagging at home, or responsibilities at home, or things at home that prevent you from actually just being in this place. And I wanna give you permission to be here, but it's not really my permission to give. <laughs> Thank you, one guy, one guy got that one. <laughs> Thank you, honey. <laughs> 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 I have that poster too. Okay, so um, there are some of you, though, who came and didn't want to be here. And you know who you are. You're hard right now to this. You're putting everything to the test. You have pretense on you. There's nothing that can impress you about anything that you're going to experience here. But I promise you, if you just let down those walls, and you give a bunch of weird Christian guys a shot, you're gonna realize that you're surrounded by people who are just as much of a mess as you are. <laughs> There's some people that got that too, I see. Maybe a few more. But I know this, it's not about just what I say, and it's not about what Max sings. There's always a spirit in these places where God begins to speak, and he speaks only to you. And I can't tell you when that moment's gonna be. I don't know if that moment is when you're staring down at the water, or you're listening to another conversation from a man or it's in the silence of your bed tonight when something hits you. If it's a text that you get from home, or if it's finally the realization in your own heart that you need to open yourself up to these things that we're talking about from up front, but I can tell you this, there have been thousands of man hours put into this thing by tons of volunteers and directors, tons of money spent, in hopes that you would hear the whisper of that voice. So you're not here to be entertained or to entertain yourself. You are here to meet with God. There, people are starting to get it now. You are here to have a divine meeting with the almighty God of the universe. And he wants to meet with you, and if you will let that down for a bit, you will hear him speak. And I don't know how you're gonna hear it, only you will know. But in that moment that he speaks, you better stop everything that you're thinking about and only think about that one thing. Because I know men too well. Because that's all I've done for 30 years, is work with men. And I can tell you this, we love feeling convicted, but we don't like acting with conviction. We love the feeling of being convicted, but we'll walk out that door and pretend like we didn't even hear that voice of the Spirit move. And then we will never change. And that's why men have problems. They don't pay attention to Almighty God. So there's my little pep talk before the talk, okay? <laughs> so take me up on that, will you? So I'm gonna be uh, speaking about a number of topics that kind of surround this whole idea of what it means to live all in. And I'm hoping tonight we'll kind of set the preface for everything we're gonna talk over the next few sessions and I pray that this will bless you. But I have to have you think about a question tonight that is a question that I know every man asks. He asks it multiple times throughout the day. He usually asks it of himself in a moment of failure. He thinks about it. He probably doesn't confess it to other people. 
but it stirs on the back of his mind. He thinks about it when he's very young to the day that he dies. And it's this question right here. What makes a man? That is the biggest question you're ever gonna ask yourself, gentlemen. And I promise you, you thought about it today in some little nuanced kind of way. You thought about that question. Whether it was when your wife chastised you, <laughs> or when you're driving up here and you get pulled over because you got a ticket. That was me. I haven't gotten a ticket in like 50 years. I've been driving for maybe about 30, and I can tell you right now that that was not a beautiful moment for me. But you hear this conviction, don't you? What makes a man? And how do you respond to the moment that your manlyhood and your masculinity is called on? What do you do? How do you act when you get pulled over? How do you speak to the officer? How do you drive away from that moment? What is a man and what makes a man? You asked it when you were trying to put up your tent. <laughs> you, thought it, you thought about it when you looked down at the deuce in the toilet, I promise you. You thought about it when you screwed something up today and you said something that you probably shouldn't have, which is what I just did. And you're thinking about these things all the time, you just don't recognize it. Here's the question again, what makes a man? So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, don't hold that against me, Vallejo, small little town on the northeast side of the bay. Anybody from Vallejo? Probably got a few people, yeah. I, had, I said that once to a crowd like this and some guy from the back shouted, yeah, I grew up in Vallejo! And then he paused and he said, yeah, but I spent most of my time in San Quentin. <laughs> Which is basically all of my high school class right there. That's just it. I grew up in this little town, Vallejo, and uh, I remember one day we were, um, we were uh, headed out to uh, gym class, and uh, we had this, this teacher. His name was Coach Baptista. Coach Baptista was notoriously late for class. He was just that guy. And... Uh, you know, sometimes five minutes late, 10 minutes late. This day, he happened to be 15 minutes late. We all went into the locker room. We changed into our, our, our gym clothes, and basically, they were clothes that you wore for an entire semester and never washed, right? And uh, they were a color, school color on one side and white on the other, and so we put on our stanky clothes, went out to the basketball court, and we're waiting around, and we don't have any tools, and it's, it's basketball gym class. There's no basketballs. There's no teacher. And we're just all kind of standing around, kind of waiting for Coach Baptista. And, you know, about five minutes into class, we're just having this conversation, and it's me and, and four boys, and we're just chatting it up, and all of a sudden we see one of our friends walk past class. He notices that Coach Baptista isn't there, and so he, he invades the class, and he comes over to our little group, and he walks up, and he said, hey, guys, hey, guys. He's an Italian kid, you know, and uh, he just says, hey, hey, did you guys hear? What, what Tony did over the weekend? And we're like, no, we didn't hear what Tony did over the weekend. So he proceeded to tell us, right? And uh, he begins to describe the fact that Tony's parents were gone and Tony had a girl over for the entire weekend. So we got to hear about Tony's entire sexual episode with this girl over this entire weekend. By the way, we're probably about 13 years old and uh, we didn't really understand everything that was being talked about at that moment because we didn't have cell phones back then, by the way, if you're, if you're wondering. Uh, we, we barely had paperback books, okay? So this is a California school, all right? So um, this was, for me, perhaps one of those first pornographic moments. And he begins to describe all this stuff that Tony did with this girl, that Tony told him that he had done. And you could, if you looked at us back then, our eyes were wide open and our jaws were on the ground and we're just listening to this Italian kid with his accent tell us all about what Tony had done. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Coach Baptista, who is just an angry coach, by the way, he walks into the room, he sees his kid, he yells at him, tells him to get out of our class. And, 
And, you know, this kid looks at us. He, he pulls us around one last time. And then he backs away from the group and he looks at us all. And we're just like in shock. And he says, well, guys, I guess Tony became a man. <laughs> Laughable. Tony became a man. As if he understood what made a man. I'm gonna tell you this, though. By the time I was 13, I'd already been through my second dad, and I believed every word he said. I believed for me to become a man, I had to penetrate a woman. And that seeded a little thought in my brain that carried on for many years. These little moments are impactful in our life, and I would love to tell you that that's the only thing that's happening in our culture today about manhood, masculinity, and what makes a man. But those aren't the only voices that we hear anymore. You know, I've learned over my life as I've kind of studied manhood myself that there's only four ways that men pursue an answer to that one question. What makes a man? And I'm gonna give you all four of them. I think it encompasses all, all of our pursuit. You may wanna write these down. Here's the first way. We pursue an answer to that question by avoiding certain behaviors. Those are some of the first voices you hear in relationship to that question. So the first voices you hear sound like this. Don't act like a girl, don't throw like a girl, don't cry like a girl, so don't be a girl. So where you begin your journey, where you begin your journey is by trying to avoid certain things. Not actually pursuing anything, it's just not doing something that some other gender is doing. Is there something flying around here behind? Okay, yeah, I just, your eyes went over here, and I was like, what is he looking at? Like, is there someone? It's a bird, isn't it? It's a bat, even better. I was gonna say it's a dove, but you know, we'll go with bat, okay. <laughs> Whatever, a bat. Sounds so much more spiritual. <laughs> a lot of men spend their entire life pursuing an answer to that question by just avoiding things. That's a horrible way to live your life. So many men get trapped by it because they, they think that that is the answer. Just don't do those things. And so they get trapped in these endless, I wouldn't even say theological cycles where they think that they're actually pursuing something by not pursuing this one thing over here. Hopefully, at some point, we outgrow that. And when we do, we then end up in the second pursuit. The second way that we pursue and answer the question is by rite of passage. Rite of passage. And guess what? Our culture has invented rites of passage for young men, too, hasn't it? The moment you get your driver's license, rite of passage. The moment you have your first smoke or first vape or whatever you do today, Rite of passage. Moment you have your first drink, rite of passage. First moment you look at pornography, penetrate a woman, rite of passage. I can tell you, we can, we've, we've tried to invent these since the beginning of time. Cultures before us have tried to manufacture these. They have. Into trying to fool you that you've become a man. But you haven't. Because a rite of passage doesn't make you a man. You know how I know? Women have sex and they don't become men. <laughs> if they did, that would be weird. <laughs> don't think about that too long, by the way, okay? <laughs> but that's pure logic, right? Isn't it? A behavior? Makes you a man? Absolutely not. But we pursue those things to the end of our days thinking that it will or that will persuade someone 
or that will trick them into becoming a man. But none of those things make men. Third way men pursue it, this is where most men get stuck for very, very, very long periods of time, is by pursuing things like significance, title, and power. In fact, if we can get past pursuing things that we're pursuing things and avoiding things, and then if we can get past rites of passage, then we get to this place where we're like pursuing a career and pursuing life, and we think that like a title and a role and power and money is gonna make us a man. But it doesn't, you know how I know? Lose it all, get fired, and then go talk with a man. Because the number one reason that a man goes to a counselor today is because his wife made him, <laughs> because he lost his job. It's really two reasons, I guess. But it is the number one reason that men go to counselors. You know why? Their entire identity was wrapped up into something they did. And that was taken from them and they're nothing? Preposterous. If you've been there, you understand it. Lose it all one day. You should still, still be able to stand on some kind of fortitude and continue down your path of life because those things shouldn't define you. Fourth way, men pursue an answer to that question. This is the most ancient of all ways. It's by the pursuit of virtue. And by the way, one of the ancients that wrote about this was Aristotle, and he wrote a book called Neomachean Ethics, and in it he describes over, you know, a dozen or so different attributes or characteristics or virtues that men pursue, and I've read it. I'm gonna tell you it's exhausting. I can't do all those things. I can't even give all my attention to all those things. I might be able to do a couple of them well, but I can't do a long list of a dozen of them. It's impossible. That's because it's designed to be exhausting. And here's why. None of those things make men. None of them. Not one of those four pursuits. And can I tell you why? because it is actually the wrong question that you're asking yourself. It's the wrong question I pose to you tonight. The right question is this, who makes men? And there's only one that does, and he made the very first one, and he said, hmm, very good. This is very, very basic logic, gentlemen, and I want you to follow it, okay? This is so simple. It's so simple that you can actually take this out of this place tonight. If you want to understand something that's created, you go to the creator of that thing. And yet the world thinks they have the answer to masculinity? Laughable. As if they can define what is toxic by giving an answer from the culture itself that's psychotic. The pursuit begins with the one who designed us and we go back to him to understand that design. Okay, so I've taken you a little place on a journey right now, so now let's go all the way back to the beginning of time to see what God did. I love this part of the story because I just want to tell you something. The Bible is a book written by men for men so that you can understand who makes a man so that you can understand how to be one. Did you catch that? All the authors of the Bible were men. Every one of them. They wrote it so that you could understand what it means to be a man. It was written about a man who led you to the path to becoming men. Don't ever forget that. Okay, so now let's go back to the beginning of time. This is where it is so fun for me to read the Bible. Because back at the beginning of time, God creates everything. Light and darkness, land and water, the earth that we live on, and my favorite part of the story, man, for a while, was planetary ruler. 
you've thought about being that man. I promise you. It's the dream job for every man. Ruler of the planet. That's where we began, fellas. That's a good story. Now, it didn't take us long to blow it. <laughs> Three chapters. We had two good chapters. Really, no, it was a half of the second chapter that was really good. The part where you're running around naked in the garden having all the sex you ever want was good. That was all good. But think about it just for a second. Beginning of time, God creates all things, and then he creates man, says he's very good, and then turns to him and gives him power, dominion, and authority. I think that's pretty special. A creator of all things turns to us and says, rule the planet. And inside of God's dominion, he gave us that kind of authority. It's crazy when you think about it. And then what he does next blows my mind. He turns to man and says, name the creatures of the earth, which is a fascinating responsibility when you really think about it, isn't it? To be able to name something is to impart identity. Don't forget that. To name something is to impart identity. And so I kind of wonder if God, as he's walking around the garden with man, isn't mildly entertained at what man is naming the creatures of the earth. Don't you wonder that? I do. I bet there were moments that God thought to himself, that was stupid. <laughs> but I told you you could. So you did. Big mistake. And he continues and continues and continues. We don't know how long this goes on. And then, then, somewhere in the narrative, God gives him one stinking rule. Not even two. One. I think because he thought man was a little slow after all these names he was throwing out there. <laughs> and it's this one rule. Don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree that holds the knowledge of good and evil. There were two trees there, one of life, one of knowledge. He said, don't eat of that tree which is laughable if you ask me, because the very first sin was eating. Ah, think about that just for a second. Eating. Eating something that looked good, was pleasurable to the eyes, and provided a very unique power. Fascinating. Knowledge that God had. But God wasn't done yet, because God saw that it was not good for man to be alone, so he created a helper for him, and he did. Out of Adam, he creates, and guess what the very next thing man names is? Woman. He imparts identity to woman. Think about that just for a second. To woman. And then for the next, I don't know, however long, few moments, Man and woman ran around naked and had a lot of sex in the garden, and it was really, really good. Which I think gave pleasure to man and gave pleasure to God. It was perfect, fellas, until you get to chapter three. Chapter three is fascinating, because all of a sudden, woman's having a conversation with somebody. Imagine that. <laughs> take your time. No, really, take your time. Imagine. She's actually having a conversation with somebody. And uh, in, in this moment, she's having a conversation. She's talking with a serpent. Now, that's mind-blowing. It bothers me still today. Every time I read it, I'm, like, disturbed by it. But you've seen talking geckos on commercials, so just imagine that this gecko's selling insurance to this woman about this tree. said, hey, you take a bite. This is going to save you a bunch of money, a bunch of time. You're going to gain wisdom. It's going to make you wealthy and rich because all the money has saved you, blah, 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 blah. He's selling this stuff to her, and she takes of it. She brings it back to man. Man and woman eat, and there is the fall of man. I hate this moment. Here's why I hate this moment. Because it's indicative of what women do and prototypical of what they do, and it's prototypical of what we do. Women engage, men disengage. Women act, men sit in passivity. And what we see here is a man 
endowed with power, authority, dominion, voice, a moral rule before a woman was ever created, and in the middle of the sin, he says nothing and does nothing in the face of injustice. And that is the problem with men, fellows. We sit on our apathetic butts, that's the Christianized version, <laughs> and when we feel a conviction, we don't speak up or act out on behalf of God. Because get this, there's two variations of sin here. There's active disobedience, what woman did, and there's passive disobedience, what we did. And I don't care how you get to sin, both ways get you to sin. Doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, but this is the prototypical way that we all get there. By actively being disobedient or passively disobedient, but we know this, both paths lead, lead us to what we want because they both wanted the same thing to have the knowledge that God had. Man got it in his sneaky, deceptive, I'm gonna pretend like I don't want it, but I want it kind of way by sitting there, not saying anything with the mouth that God gave him to define things and the power God gave him to have dominion over things and the rule that he knew that he was culpable for before a woman was ever created and then woman just took it and ran with it and that's why we have the situations we have in life today. Listen carefully. I'm gonna say it and drop it into everything that I've already said. We have the problems that we have today with men because we pursue our own way because we wanna be God. We wanna be God of our body, of this life, of work, of our marriage. We wanna be gods, and we have a hard time confessing that to ourselves because we don't even wanna admit it because it's that devious and that sinful. And this is the truth about men. Here's the good news of the story. The good news of the story is Adam wasn't the first problem. Every man after him was a problem. <laughs> and that is the good news. Because if you continue to read the narrative of the Old Testament, what you hear is hopeful man failure, hopeful man failure, hopeful man failure. You hear God searching for a man all throughout the New Testament in hope of just finding one, Ezekiel 22:30. But he couldn't even find one. All he found was goose egg, not one. And every once in a while, you see this little moment of hope, and then, oh, he sleeps with Bathsheba. <laughs> Boom. Oh, he slaps a rock with a stick. Up, 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 up. And I think God finally gets irritated with us, to be quite honest with you. I think he does. I, get, I think he gets mildly irritated with us. You know how I know? Because when you begin the New Testament, God provides his own man. These guys aren't getting it done. I'm just gonna give him my own. And he's gonna come speaking and doing everything that we couldn't speak and do. True. And he walked this life, perfect humanity, perfect divinity, perfect in all his ways. And what was crazy about what he did was he performed miracles along the way to give us a, a hint that it was him. And along this path, we come to discover that he tells a very remarkable story in the middle of it all. It's one of my favorite stories he ever told. And I'm gonna read it for you tonight. The setup for this is fairly simple, so if you wanna turn to Luke chapter 15. Oh, look at there, Bibles. Look at those things. They got pages and stuff? Awesome. Hey. <laughs> Dude, your Bible's huge. Don't throw that at anybody, okay? <laughs> Luke chapter 15, Jesus is telling a story, and I'm gonna read the greatest story ever told by Jesus because it's just that good. I'm gonna make some comments along the way, and inside of this, we're gonna see these four pursuits that I talked about, but you're also gonna see that Jesus is letting us on to something. I'm gonna read the first two verses of Luke 15 because I think they're very important. Fellas, as you read the Bible, context is important. Extremely important. It's important to understand. What Jesus is doing in this moment is this. He's responding 
to some Pharisees who see him hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. It reads here in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Context, important. Okay, so Jesus is a genius, all right, on every level. When he tells a story, you have to remember, he is making it up on the spot. <laughs> every time. And he's making divine points that have meaning then and even today. His stories are so tight and so perfect that they provide conviction then and conviction now, but most people didn't get the point. So I want you to see the point tonight. So he tells a couple of stories first, and then he jumps into the greatest one. It's the story of the prodigal son, right? Remember that, story of the prodigal son. Verse 11 now. Luke 15, and he, Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. So he's making up a story, fellas. Don't forget that. On the spot, making up a story. There's a father with two sons. So it's a fictional father with fictional sons, okay? But you could probably imagine Jesus is thinking about a religious father with potentially religious sons. Probably a Jewish father with Jewish children. Because Jesus is speaking to Pharisees and scribes. And he's responding to their indignant attitude toward sinners. And the younger of them, so he goes to the youngest one first. And he says, and the younger of them said this to the father. Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So what is this young man saying here? Now, most of us probably understand this. This would be to walk up to a Jewish father and to say to him, I wish you were dead. I want to have nothing to do with you. Your ways and your life are meaningless to me. Give me my money now. Because guess what? Jewish fathers didn't hand out an inheritance until they were dying. So this is the ultimate insult to a Jewish father. Jesus just pulls that out of his hat. But what's fascinating is this father divided his property between them, which means he divided it between the oldest son who got a double portion and the younger son who got a single portion because that's how fathers in a Jewish culture did it. So not only does he disperse his property to the younger one, he gives it to the older one too, which is totally fascinating. Why that detail? We'll get to that. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there squandered his property in reckless living. How many of you have done that? Raise your hands. One, two, three, you. What's your name? Uh, yeah, see, there we go. It's okay to confess this. Many of us have been there, right? Why? Because you thought you understood what it meant to be a man. That's why. You thought you understood. You thought you had it all figured out. You thought your dad was wrong. You thought everybody else was around you was wrong. You thought you knew what it meant. So he goes off and he goes to Vegas, down to New Orleans. You know, he's, he's drinking it up, having a good time, living in vanity. And when he had spent everything, <laughs> his pockets are now empty. He spent everything because... He didn't have it all figured out. Then it gets worse. A severe famine arose in that country, which I think is laughable that Jesus throws in natural disaster here. Because that's exactly how it works every single time, isn't it? You're poor, and then it just gets worse, right? It goes from bad to worse every single time, doesn't it? Does my life sometimes? That's how it works. And a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, this is a Gentile country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. Now just note here, side note, Jews don't like pigs. They're unclean animals. I like bacon though. I am proud to be a Gentile. I'm hoping bacon in the morning. I wanna smell bacon. 
I want it just a little cooked, all right? A little crispy, maybe. Mmm. I can eat a pound of bacon and feel no shame, just so you know, right? But Jews didn't eat a pound of bacon and feel shame. They felt shame. They came close to these animals. This is funny. Jesus inserts this into the story. The most insulting animal on the face of the planet to Jews. Didn't even touch it. He's working on a pig farm. That's what he's doing. It's laughable. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So I went from bad to worse to worse to now really bad. Because now he's looking down at swine food because he's in desperation. He's in despair. Because some of us have to learn the hard way, don't we? Raise your hand again. Yep, some of us do. Thank you. Thanks for throwing it up with pride there, Andrew. Appreciate that. It's James, I know. So, but some of us do have to learn the hard way. This is what I hate about men. Sometimes pain is our only teacher. It doesn't have to be that way. But this guy had to learn through pain. But when he came to himself, I love those words, he came to himself. He came to his senses. He had a moment of logic and recognition. All of a sudden, his brain turned on. <laughs> and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, listen carefully, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Notice that order there. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's willing to give up his identity. Treat me as one of your hired servants, a nameless servant. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him as if he was looking for him. As if he was actually looking for him. He looks over the ridge and he notices his silhouette because he knows him that well. His father saw him and felt compassion. So something was happening in his heart. And he ran, which Jewish fathers didn't do. And he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, listen carefully here. Go back to his last comments. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, and he can't get out the rest of it. He can't get out the rest of it. His father interrupts him, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate. Man, that's good news right there. That is such good news. This father reinstates his sonship. He puts on the great robe, the signet ring, sandals on his feet, and kills the best calf for a meal and celebrates, not the response you would see from a Jewish father. Note that, not the typical response you would see from a Jewish father. In this situation, most Jewish fathers, meaning the Jews that were sitting there listening, are thinking to themselves, you get that kid out of your house and he never comes back ever again. He has spent what you gave him, he's done. But not this father. He is overly generous to him again. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and dancing, the celebration. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But, here we go, but he was angry and refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look. Sounds like something a politician would say. Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son, notice that, this son, doesn't even call him by name, this son of yours, not even my brother, my nameless non-brother, <laughs> who has devoured your property with prostitutes, true, you kill the fatted calf for him? And the father said to him, son, 
You're always with me, and all that I have is mine. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay, sad ending, because we don't know where it goes. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. Who's Jesus speaking to right now? Someone shout it out. Tax collectors and sinners. There's two young men in the story. One is a prodigal son who comes home. He was bad than good. At the end of the story, the, th the, the one that you thought was the good son is actually the prodigal son. He's the one who was left hanging. We don't know what's gonna happen to him. And Jesus is calling these tax collectors and sinners prodigals. That's what he's doing. You are the prodigal. I have come for the ones who want to come home, but you don't. Stop being indignant to my children. You're the one that needs to come home, not them. That's the story, fellas. The story is of a younger son who came and discovered that the father is the one who is gonna impart his identity because that's how you get identity. It's imparted. The one who thought he was a son wasn't a son because he was self-righteous, stuck in his ways, and guess what? Both of those boys wanted what the father wanted, but they did it two different ways. One was actively disobedient. One was passively disobedient. Do you see it? One came home from his active disobedience, allowed the father to impart him his identity. The older son, who looks good, was actually bad and belligerent, and he wanted the same thing the younger son wanted. He wanted the father's inheritance, and he knew that that son being home threatened his future inheritance. Because where do you get another portion? You get it from the other son. Unless, of course, the father is God and he is that rich. Which is the cunning part of the story. I mean, it's cunning. Because this isn't about a natural father, not about natural sons. It's about a heavenly father and us. And Jesus told this story in hopes that we would all come home to the father. That's the point. He's wanting us all to come home. But he turns the story on the head against these Pharisees and scribes who think they got it all put together. But guess what? They're just doing their own version of masculinity and manhood too. Because it's all been tried before, fellas. There's only one way to become a man. It's through the man, Jesus Christ. That's it. Get this, greatest thing that Jesus Christ ever did was this. It wasn't his first miracle, water to wine. That's a pretty good stinking miracle, if you ask me. You would have all kinds of Lutheran and Catholic friends if you could be able to do that, okay? <laughs> Great miracle. Totally awesome, totally awesome that he could spit in mud and make a guy see. I, fascinating, if you ask me. Totally even more awesome that a woman could touch his cloak and be healed from years of bleeding. Fascinating. It just keeps getting cooler and cooler through the narrative of Jesus' life. Then at the culmination of it all in John, we read about him raising Lazarus from the dead. Now Jesus is just showing off, right? Jesus keeps scaling it up. But Jesus takes it one step further and he takes it to the place where we all need him to go. The greatest miracle of all time, greatest miracle of all time, dies on the cross for the sin of all mankind, all of our sin and our selfishness and self-centeredness there on the cross, is paid for through the penalty. Our penalty of sin is paid for through his holiness and his holy body poured out a blood offering to God on that cross, is buried in a grave, three days later gets up from that grave. You know why? As proof, as proof that he can defeat sin and death. so that he could redeem us as men. 
and reinstate our manhood. On that cross, through that grave, and by that resurrection, we are made men again. Everything that was lost in the garden was put back together on that cross and proven defeated by his resurrection. Our rite of passage is Jesus Christ. Our character is based on his. Everything that we tried to do, he did for us. There is nothing you can do except this. Believe and receive the fact that he is Savior and Lord of all things. So if you've been trying to figure out forever what the answer to that question is, what makes me a man? The right answer to it is Jesus Christ makes you a man and that's it. Because it ain't avoiding things and it ain't rites of passage and it ain't pursuing success or significance and it ain't virtue, it's only Jesus Christ by through whom you become a redeemed man, holy and righteous in God's eyes. Because guess what? Your identity as a man has to be imparted to you by the Father. You don't earn it, you don't work for it, you don't even deserve it, by the way, but you can believe and accept it. And by simply sitting in that chair where you sit tonight and believing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of your life, you become a man right now where you sit. It's craziness. Listen, listen to the beginning of John right here. This is craziness. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, believe and receive, receive and believe, he gave right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. That's the truth. It's written in the only book of truth. Those two verses right there or your reinstatement of who you are as a man and the way that you become a man. And I wanna tell you again, right now, setting where you're setting right now, if you've never become a man before in your life, you can do that by receiving and believing in the chair you're sitting right now. By just believe, it's, it's craziness. It's too good to be true, isn't it? It's too good to be true. Because you couldn't earn it. You couldn't work for it, you couldn't do it. You have to receive it. And by believing, this is craziness. Because our rite of passage into manhood is Jesus Christ, his mercy, love, forgiveness, and salvation. That's it. And some of you are sitting on the precipice of making that decision right now. And I want you to think seriously about it. Because here's the good part of the whole decision. The decision then absolves all the sin of your past, even the sin of your future. And in that moment, you become a man, guess what you get? you get all the inheritance that the Father will bestow upon you, Ephesians 1. You get to become a child of God. Here's the crazy thing about it. In Ephesians 1, it says that God has all kinds of blessings for us as adopted children. Love, grace, mercy, inheritance. And he goes on and on and on about all the blessings that he gives to us. Guess why? Because there's only one Father and sons and daughters, and that's it. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a first generation recipient of his inheritance. And by the way, that inheritance is pretty good. The inheritance of a firstborn son, by the way, which is very good. And God is very generous to men who make this decision. He pours that out on you, his righteousness. But he doesn't stop there. He gives you a spirit to live in you, to empower you to live that life. And you are a son, and we are brothers inside of a new family. And all you guys dealing with father garbage in your life, guess what? You can let all that father garbage go because you only have one father, and he is good and great. It doesn't stop there, though. And because they told me I could talk as long as I want tonight, I'm going to keep going. Because after you make that decision to receive and believe, the journey is hard, isn't it? Some of you fellas know this. You know that the journey is hard with God. 
And the reason why it's hard with God is because there's all this stuff coming at you all the time about what makes a man. And I tell men all this all the time, but there's only five voices that I believe men hear. You may wanna write these down. Five voices that I believe all men hear all the time that distract them on this journey of living as a son of God, as a man of God. And here's the first voice. It's the voice of the man that we think we are. That's the arrogant man. That's a man that thinks he's got it all figured out, and boy, I can tell you, most of us think we're legends in our own mind. <laughs> Every once in a while, you get a, that abhor, you do something well, and you think, oh man, I got this thing all figured out, and then five seconds after that, you realize you don't. But that voice of the arrogant man will distract you on the journey of living as a man of God, won't it? Voice number two, the voice of the man that other people think you are. That voice is very distracting as well. Because we got men that aren't just arrogant in this room, we got people pleaser men in this room that are exhausted right now because they've pleased so many people. You're running around trying to keep your wife happy, your boss happy, your friend happy, and you realize you've given over your, the entire control of your life to somebody else. But it gets worse because there's a third voice it's a man that you think other people think that you are. <laughs> a little bipolar, I know, but it happens. It happens. There are so many men driven by this voice. I have three children, one that's 25, she's married, and I got a 22-year-old, and I got a 19-year-old that thinks he's 70 or whatever, I don't know. But that 22-year-old, man, he hears this voice all the time. It's the voice of the man that he thinks that other people think that he is. And it's a voice often of regret and guilt, isn't it? Because you screwed something up throughout the day and you wonder now what all these people think about you because of that one thing. There are men that live running aimlessly after that voice and it has power over you. And you can't let that voice have power over you. Voice number four is this. It's the voice of the man that you were. And some of you know this voice, and some other people remind you of it, don't they? They weaponize your past against you. Even though you're a man of God, you gotta live through all these other circumstantial things and consequences, and people keep coming after you about the man that you were, and you hear that voice. And then there's a the fifth voice, and this is the one you need to listen to. It's the voice of the man that God says you are. The voice of the man that God says you are. And the only way that you find that voice is in God's word through his spirit, confirming it and preaching it to yourself. Preaching it to yourself. And this isn't the power of positive talk or positive thinking because I'm not Norman Vincent Peale. That's not who I am right now. I'm not Tony Robbins. When you're preaching the truth that you find in God's word about you, you're preaching reality to your soul. It's the voice of God speaking to you. And I wanna let you know throughout any given day, all of you men hear all those voices. Sometimes you hear all four of them throughout the day, don't you? They're screaming to you about who you are. But you have to preach to your soul and fight. Fight with scripture, by the power of the spirit and prayer and brothers, by the way, for the voice of God and who he says that you are. And I know this, sitting in this room, there are men who have probably made a confession of faith, received and believed in the relationship with God, been adopted in, who probably over the past few months or maybe years have slipped away into one of those voices, been trapped by it, and you're looking to find out how to make your way back right now in this room. And I want to let you know that it's possible. God is in the business of restoring and loving and accepting and he's looking over the ridge for the shadow and the silhouette of who you are and he's, he's, he's running to you, begging you to come home, begging. I thought I had it all figured out. Age 13, I moved into my grandfather's house. He was a Christian man. My father was an atheist, my mom an agnostic. When I turned about 13 or 14, 
My grandfather had me move in with him. He was a man of faith, civil engineer, worked in the Navy for a long time. We were in Vallejo, there's a naval base there, et cetera, et cetera. I moved into his house, life was different. Eventually, at some point, I began to kind of really understand what he was trying to teach me about God, but then I had a moment of rebellion. I was the younger son. I walked away from his teaching. I thought I had it all figured out. I wanted to live my own way. Guess where I went? I went to Chico, California. Here's why I went to Chico, California. Because in 1988, Playboy magazine named it the number one party school in the nation. That's why I went there. I was there only a few months, and in a drunken stupor, woke up one morning, looked at myself in the mirror and said, this ain't what I'm supposed to be doing. I hopped in my 1959 Volkswagen truck. Most of you Portlanders know what that looks like, right? <laughs> and I needed to make a trip home, and I needed to go home to Grandpa. I knew he was the only one that would accept me. I was out of money, I had partied away, I was the younger son. Here's my problem. I was a few hundred miles away from home and my Volkswagen truck was stuck in second gear. There was something wrong with the tranny. So, I took off down the freeway. 17 miles an hour. <laughs> in my 36 horsepower motor. Burning oil out the back. Got so hot I had to turn the heater tubes on in the cab. Let the heat blow in so the engine could cool off. Revving it up, driving down the freeway, open the safari window so I can get all the smoke out of the cab. Turn on the transistor radio. On the radio comes a poet. His name is Bob Dylan. <laughs> Sang a song to my soul. Began to talk about how his life was a rolling stone. Nowhere was his home. And I started weeping like a baby. Quite a picture, probably, coming down the interstate. <laughs> crying like a baby, smoke coming out the back, going all of 17 miles an hour as people are flying past me, going 70. And eventually I made it home. And I'll never forget the moment that I pulled up in front of my grandfather's house. He had an old wartime house, one bedroom home, small kitchen, small living room, and a garage that he converted into an apartment for me. The truck pulled up to a stop and an engine idled, if you know what that is pre-automatic cars, automatic transition. It was engine idling, it wouldn't stop, so I slammed on the gas one time and it finally puttered to a stop. I knew that that truck was not gonna start again. That was a fact. So I was stuck. Laid my head down on the steering wheel and it was hard, fellas, to get out of that truck because I knew to get out of that truck meant I had to make the walk of shame up to my grandfather's house. I sat there for a couple of minutes, got out, made the walk up to my grandfather's house. In front of my grandfather's house was this large picture window, if you can imagine that. Behind it were two lazy boy chairs that sat facing the television set, which by at that time was a television set. And I could see my grandfather was sitting in one of the chairs because he had a big bald head. And, uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, harassment, I'm gonna file that later. Um, so, <laughs> he, I saw him sitting in a chair, he had his hands behind his head, and he was, you know, he typically would just lay there and pray. That's actually what he would do is pray, genuinely pray. And I'm walking up there and I see him and I almost come to a halt. I st I'm standing on, in front of the house and there's long stairway going up to the door. And I stop. And I, I can't move, I physically can't move, I'm kind of stuck because this is too hard. Fellas, you know what I'm talking about? It's hard. And all of a sudden I look at the, the, the lazy boy and he's vacated it, it's rocking, and I'm thinking, well, now's my time to go if I wanna go, and I'm about to turn to go, and I look up at the top of the stairs and he's opened the door. And he's looking down at me. He smiles. He turns his head to the kitchen where my grandmother was making lunch and he says these words. Grandma, our son has come home. I had no idea that he was referring to me as the prodigal son. Hadn't even read that yet. Years after he died, I realized it. Realized it was kind of an insult. 
And then I walked up the stairs because he did this. And he embraced me. I want you to know that that entire afternoon, not a word was spoken. Just came into his home, sat down at the meal, we ate. It went into the evening. My grandfather turned to me with my grandmother at his side and said, son, I hope you know things have to change. And I said, I know, I know. I wanna implore you gentlemen right now to take this very seriously, what I'm about to invite you to do. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. This might be your moment to come home. I want you to know that I'm not gonna manufacture this for you. That's not my job. I'm not gonna guilt you, I'm not gonna shame you about it, but I'm gonna offer you the invitation because that's all I can do. I can tell you what the Bible says. I can tell you what God did. I can tell you that God wants you to be a man of God. I can tell you that he wants you as a man of God to come home and set aside all these other voices. But only you can make this decision. So I just want you to think about that just for a second. And I'm going to offer a prayer for two men sitting in this room, two groups of men. First, the man who is ready to become a real man, a man of God. Second, the man who wants to come home to the Father. And then if that is your commitment and you are ready to do it, I'm gonna invite you to do something. So will you pray with me right now? Great and holy God, we call upon your great name. God, we come to you tonight because we're just wayward men. And we're just trying to figure out how to do things. God, there are men in this place whose heart is stirred by you, not me, not by this music, by you. Some of them are ready for the very first time to become a man of God. They know that they've been sinful. They've tried it their way. They've run from you. They've lived poorly. They pursue their own paths. And right now, they believe for the very first time and are ready to receive. Receive you as their savior and as the Lord of their life. God, they're ready to hand it all over because they've tried everything else. And in a moment of de desperation, they come to your generosity and your love and your mercy and your grace and they need it. Fellas, if that's you in this place right now, will you do me a favor? Would you just stand up boldly where you're at right now? Don't think about it too long, just stand up. Thank you, brother, thank you, brother, thank you, brother. Stand up, thank you, brother. Stand up, thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Welcome to the family, brother. If that's you, stand up right now. Don't be afraid of it. There's no shame in standing up. But you need to. Standing up is your confession. It's the first part of your confession. Thank you, brother. Welcome to the family. God, right now there's a few men in this place who are standing who for the very first time are your children. That makes them my brother and I'm excited for them. 
God, I'm gonna pray right now that you'll pour out forgiveness and love and grace and mercy upon these gentlemen that have stood. There'll probably be others this weekend, but God, right now we pray for all of them that you would help them to know you, not just as Savior, as Lord, as a controller, the dictator, the leader of their life. God, I pray that they would take this standing confession right now and turn it into a verbal one that they'd begin talking with brothers in this place about the decision that they made tonight with pride. You guys just remain standing. God, we also come to you understanding that there's other men in this place who need to run back to you right now. They're here already, they know it. They've listened to all these other voices, they've strayed from your voice, and they wanna tune in again. Fellas, if that's you, would you stand up right now? If you're ready to recommit, restore, be redeemed, reconcile, would you stand right now? I want you fellas to know as you stand that your father loves you and he accepts you. Maybe some of the things you did weren't very glorifying, but your father can redeem those things again and again and again and again. The reason why he's overly generous. He's got endless wealth and endless riches. Gentlemen, if you haven't stood and you felt compelled to, and you know you need to, make that declaration right now. Just stand up. It's your declaration. But it's also a commitment to God to say, look, I'm turning away from these things. I'm repenting. I'm turning. I pray that this moment will form, become concrete to you, will be a standing stone, a commitment to God. And fellas, as I pray for all of us here, we have all been actively disobedient and passively disobedient. We've been the younger son and the older son. We've been the tax collector and sinner, and we've been the self-righteous Pharisee and scribe. God, we bring these things to you, understanding that you're always good to us, but there is only one Father which makes us sons and brothers together. God, we commit all this to you as we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's welcome these men into the family, fellas. <laughs>